Hey, I'm Jim McGinnis, and this is Stories We Can Tell, and I am so glad you found me. Reflections on history, literature, and music, stories about individual journeys, struggles, and victories. They come in the form of essays, and narratives, and journal entries, and readings from my favorite writers. Anyway, thanks for checking out the show. It's a rainy, blustery February morning. But this is the story about a whole different time of year and a whole different state of mind. It's called Road Trip. I hope you enjoy it. Weather, 80 degrees, mostly cloudy winds out of the southwest waxing gibbous. Bring your own redemption when you come, said Jackson Brown. I love that line. The winds out of the south meant humidity was on the rise and rain was on the way. Road trip, anyone, I asked, and two Labradors raced to the truck, poised for a morning drive. I chugged through historic downtown, then made a left onto US-1 and headed north, past the old 1900 building, the original site of the Melbourne Hotel and the Van Croy Theater by the restored but empty ice plant and the dilapidated Wells Homestead, known as Green Gables. I drove on past the seedy hotel built where the original hospital stood and where I was born. Brown Dog began to whine at the sight of water as we turned toward the lagoon, how he did love it, how both dogs loved it. Shadow was a bit more subdued about her passion, of course, until she was in it. At the red light, I dug out a homemade CD from the console, and without even looking at the scribble on the disc, I stuck it in the stereo. Blues Traveler opened up what became a strange mix. John Popper's harmonica filled my ears as I followed the bluff along the Indian River Lagoon. Even though rain was in the forecast, it wasn't raining at the moment and the river was glassy, and maybe I had chosen the wrong mode of transportation today. I nodded my head as Popper sang about the banner being torn and the possibility of growing cynical. I thought about old Wells and what a good citizen he was. A few noble Melburnians were trying to save the old mansion, but the efforts seemed to be in vain, largely because people like me hadn't gotten off our asses to help. My sense of guilt subsided, though, as the song played on. The world is too much with us, I said out loud, but it appeared it was a bit early for Wordsworth for my faithful companions. I just smiled and felt the warm sense of anticipation at having several good books awaiting me at home. Summer was here and the season demanded quality reads. Currently, I'm finishing up Surviving Slavery in the British Caribbean, a history work written by my friend and former student, Randy Brown. The story of African slavery didn't begin with the fight for freedom, but with the fight for survival. And Randy's dogged research opened my eyes to plantation brutality. But more importantly, his story gave voices to the men and women who lived and died as slaves, their passions, fears, and desires. As I've said, it's all about the stories. Amazon delivered a prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving this past week and Meacham's The Soul of America. 
so I'm ready to dig in. But first, friends had also lent me a couple of books, Canaveral Light and Running with the Bulls, a different spin on Hemingway. Old Don Argo's Canaveral Light is a book I've long intended to read, and I hope to get it on my students' reading list. Lending someone a book is a touching gesture. It always makes me feel good that a friend thinks enough of me to do so. Of course, my reckless habit of annotating and underlining favorite lines made reading a borrowed book a challenge. Upon the advice of another friend, I took to keeping a notebook by my side to ease my neurosis and avoid defacing other people's books. Traffic thickened as I approached the Babcock intersection. A right turn would have led us around to Ballard Park, a favorite place to launch the boat. But you gotta be careful about right turns. They're too easy. Route one went back, bent back north as I crossed the O'Galley River and there was a train running alongside. John Mellencamp came on, singing an underplayed cut called Your Life Is Now. The dogs were enjoying things as Donegan had his head out the passenger window and Black Dog was now standing on the console with her head beside me. Not a whole lot of peripheral vision. Will you teach your children to tell the truth, Mellencamp asked. Would you take the high road if you can choose? The Black Crows started talking about angels on the next track, the practice I share. Turned east on O'Galley Boulevard, then back north on Pineapple Avenue in front of what was once the Oleanders Hotel. Part of it still standing, a restaurant and bar called Squid Lips. I could still walk into the place and smell the history. It was where my parents stayed after World War II when they were looking for a place. My uncle, who was stationed at the new Patrick Air Force Base, told them they would love it, and he was right. It seemed as if everyone had their flags flying on pineapple, and my mind wandered as we eased northward, pondering my own sense of patriotism. It seemed my love of country was somehow linked to baseball. Maybe it was the connection with my dad or the American Legion Post 81 that so generously sponsored our summer teams, a bunch of old World War II and Korea vets hovering over us. Maybe it was the fact that we were among the first integrated ball clubs, barnstorming through countless southern towns, breaking barriers. Maybe it was that day in Sanford when my coach broke down during the national anthem. I don't know. Don't let the sound of your own wheels make you crazy. The slow train had caught up with us, and as we merged back onto US-1, I laughed out loud at the Eagles playing on the random order of songs. I'm not sure how this CD came about and calling it a CD never sounded right. Better a record or album, don't you think? That sounds like a collection of sorts, a chronicle, if you will. Anyway, it had been sitting ignored in my truck for years, but today, it was the soundtrack. My mind drifted back to baseball, and I remembered a phrase from Pat Conroy about sneaking up on the mysteries of manhood. I thought again of those wonderful summers playing American Legion ball, and today I could see the weathered face of an old umpire named Bill Nolan. Mr. Nolan, as he was always addressed, had spent a lot of my youth calling balls and strikes and safes and outs. Of course, it was more than that, and I thought of Bob Dylan's line, they say everything can be replaced, they say every distance is not near, so I remember every face of every man who put me here. Mr. Nolan was a pretty good umpire, 
Sometimes I got the corner, sometimes I didn't. One time I looked back to argue, and that was the last time. Mr. Nolan took off his mask and dressed me down right there. Both he and his partner, Roger Wilson, were good men who were instrumental in me learning the game. They commanded respect and in turn taught young men, young players, to respect themselves. Although both men were fair and objective, there was a warmth about them that made each game seem special, personal. My mother was ill for much of my youth, and I remember countless times when I'd walk up to the plate and one would raise his mask and ask me how she was doing. I seldom had good news, but I greatly appreciated the asking. As we left the traffic behind, I thought back of a game we played on Sunday right there in O'Galley. I was playing center field on a team that was loaded with talent. Graduating over to center field when my friend Cliff Roberts signed with the Kansas City Royals, Post 81 was playing a team from Coco made up of guys I had been battling my whole life. In the third or fourth inning, Larry Mikesell, a Gator, hit a rocket over my head that I heard as it went by. The ball cleared the fence by a good 10 feet and rattled around in the adjacent boat yard. O'Galley's outfield fence just back then was just a four-foot chain-link variety, and the trajectory of the ball made it nearly impossible for the umpire to see if it had indeed cleared the fence, especially when my teammates began to yell, ground rule double. My buddy in left field, Catfish, started screaming that the ball bounced over. I just stared at the grass. After the umps conferred, I looked up to see Mr. Nolan walking out towards center field, and I knew what was coming. Shit. I just stood with my hands on my knees, staring downward. When he arrived, he said, number four, it's your call. I couldn't tell. Home run by plenty, I said without looking up. The umpire turned around, gave the signal, and Larry trotted in from second base. My mates really gave it to me afterwards, but the nod I got from my coach, Bing Miller, was validation enough. Out of habit, I pulled into the cemetery and turned down Chrissy Hines' cover of Dylan. I see my light come shining from the west down to the east. I just stopped long enough to clean off my grandson Tiernan Stone and adjust the flowers. The dog sat quietly. There's not a lot to say about that little boy lying beneath the oak tree. If there is, I can't bring myself to think it. Dave Matthews sang as I took an unexplained left and headed toward Rockledge. I thought better of it and turned around at Harvey's Groves. The place looked empty, and I remembered these two kind women down at the Melbourne store who convinced me to buy some orange blossom honey to help my cough. That store's closed now. The space between the tears we cry is the laughter that keeps us coming back for more. Never understood that line. A kid asked me the other day why I was always swinging a bat in front of class. I had to laugh at myself. Some habits are never broken. It reminded me of the man who taught me to hit. Sometimes you look back at things and realize how important particular experiences were. But in this instance, I didn't have to look back. I knew it then and I know it now. Bing Miller made me a hitter and perhaps much more. He was tough, former catcher in the Dodger organization, at times a sarcastic son of a bitch who 
would rip you to shreds if he had a mind to. But then he would build you back up again in a heartbeat. Bing was old school in the purest sense of the term, and he had no time for anyone who didn't want to work hard. During the summers I spent with him, he was determined to break me down as a hitter, offering no reinforcement for what he saw as a feeble swing. I remember standing on second base after driving in two runs. There I was, proud as a peacock, but he just stood over in the third base coaching box, shaking his head. My next at-bat, I dropped one over the shortstop's head, driving in yet another run, and all I heard was, Jesus Christ, that's awful. Next time, I jumped on a fastball and hit the ball straight up, and as I jogged down to first in disgust, I could hear Bing's voice ringing, great swing, son, right on it, boy." The light finally went on, performance over results. smart enough and mature enough to understand that long-term success demanded discipline and that had to come from within. Bing Miller was determined to make me a hitter, but I had to take the first step. Roy Campanella said once that a ball player needed to be both a man and a little boy. Well, at 16 or 17, I was too much boy and Bing's bombastic approach was aimed at me becoming a little bit more man. Of course, the lesson was much broader than learning to hit a baseball, and my coach's tough love helped me make me better and tougher at just about everything I've undertaken. He made me want to be better. What's that Hemingway line? Let him think I am more man than I am, and I will be so. I remember talking to Bing years later when I was in college. Through all my success, his voice had stayed in my head. But when we spoke that day, his tone was softer, like that of a grandfather. We talked hitting for a few minutes, and I tried to say something funny, like, I finally got my head out of my ass. A smile broke over his face. Although he didn't say it, I was hoping he was proud of me. And although I didn't say it, I hoped he knew that I was trying to say thank you. Ah, oh, the mysteries of manhood. Baseball gradually left my train of thought as a stone's four-minute cover of like a rolling stone nearly got us back to Pineda. It must have been off of that Dylan tribute album I bought so long ago. I thought about a kid I once taught named Lars who told me that his name was actually an acronym for the song. Meeting his dad one time made the boy's story seem believable. Across the causeway to Bonnie Ray singing Prine's Angel from Montgomery. It sounded like she lived it. If dreams were thunder and lightning with desire, this old house would have burned down a long time ago. Headed back south on Tropical Trail, a narrow, winding road that stretches to the very southern tip of Merritt Island. Sometimes you're barely six feet from the water. It was a three-song road, and we moved along at 25, patiently maneuvering around grown men and women on bicycles, boldly declaring their independence by taking up the right lane. Never quite understood that approach. Cars yield to trucks, boats give way to bigger boats, but motorcycles and bicycles confound me. They reject any order of things, and it never ends well. But today it did, and the dogs thoroughly enjoyed greeting each rider. The road kept winding and I kept thinking, 
An article on crudeness and truth crossed my mind. It had been months since I'd read it, but for some reason it came back to me. The author argued that the criticism of the president's rudeness was a form of bullying by the left, a way of silencing the opposition. Believe it or not, he likened the president's boorish behavior to Jack Nicholson's character in Cuckoo's Nest, and then rationalized how belligerence may be the only way to achieve a conservative agenda. For the life of me, I cannot understand how good people are willing to excuse bad behavior in hopes of winning political victories. I shook my head as if to escape the thread thought. Train wheels running through the back of my memory when I ran up on a hilltop following a pack of wild geese. Some, someday, everything is going to be smooth like a rhapsody when I paint my masterpiece. That's Dylan and Levon Helm finished up as we crossed Mathers Bridge past the empty space where the restaurant once stood and over the newly painted apple green span. The sight of boats floating in the Banana River, even on this cloudy day, reminded me of my niece and again I felt the pain of losing her. Her memory had flashed in front of me back on US-1 when the Black Crows were playing, but I moved along. She never mentioned the word addiction. I wrote something about her. A breeze blows through the jalousies, blooming jasmine smelling sweet, and the sound of children playing echo between the houses down the street. You find her in her living room, watching scented candles burning down with all her things about her that keep her sane and planted on the ground. Music from the other room takes her back, a hollow haunted sound sitting there amongst the artifacts, prayers and broken promises abound. So what does that mean? Dylan said songs and poems can mean a lot of different things. If something moves you, then that's all that's important. You don't have to know, and I'm not sure I do. Stevie Ray Vaughan blasted pride and joy as we turned on to South Patrick. I couldn't help but glance over to the place where the store used to be, where I met my friend Tom. The CD began to skip, so I clipped to the next song, and Paul Simon played us back to the mainland, over the O'Galley Causeway, and on to US-1. I've been known to hold on to tapes and discs dis long past their lifespan. I'll sometimes coach a singer through a song, urging him to get through a rough patch. And there were times when I swear it worked, but there was no saving Stevie. The lagoon was still smooth as we made our way back down the coast. Simon sang Slip Sliding Away. He said, Dolores, I live in fear. My love for you is so overpowering, I'm afraid that I'll disappear. I swung by the ball field behind the school on my way home, and the dogs made noise about the possibility of an outfield run. I just smiled and kept heading toward the house. The Allman brothers broke into Jessica. Well, that's it. I'm Jim McGinnis. Fair winds. Mm -hmm.